Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Most of the time we go into a book of scripture and just work our way through um, that book for a while. And we are doing that in the Gospel of Luke. But every now and then we take a pause. And we are in one of those pauses right now. We're in a series that we're calling Taste and See. And we're talking about our embodied worship in our human experience right now. How all that we do can still be worship to the Lord. And so our goal in this series is to honor the importance importance of our embodied experience while we're in the here and not yet. This Christian faith is not just for the someday and where we will be someday. It is for the here and now as well. And so as followers of Jesus waiting in the here, Jesus ushered in the kingdom and not yet, the fullness is yet to come when he returns. We want to understand how all of our lives can be embodied worship in this period that we're in now. So a brief recap, you can find any of these uh, through our newsletter or on our website if you missed any, because we started off really rooting ourselves in a core passage for this whole series, which is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, our bodies now postured in different postures of worship. And that's what we're going through. But we started off really needing to talk about what it means that Jesus, God, entered into our human experience and that in his body, he still bears the mark of uh, his wounds in his human body now as divine God. He still bears those marks. So we wanted to enter in having a solid body theology, being trauma-informed because we also bear marks of our wounds still. But those are now in Jesus redeemed, no longer debilitating. He understands us. What does that look like for us to understand the importance of an embodied Jesus? Because now our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Our second uh, meeting in this series, we talked, actually Scott McKnight came and he taught about, you know, that passage in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. And that sounds really good. Everyone has equal value now until as he read through, what did it look like when the slave owner, Philemon, needed to uh, welcome and gather back with the escaped and returning slave, Anismus? What does it look like over the coffee pot to have to live this out in real embodied gritty ways? This isn't just churchy talk. This is a uh, gathering and welcoming one another as part of our embodied worship. And that's why we emphasize that the, the embodied part is because it's, it's very real and it can be hard to do sometimes. So last week we talked about a posture of surrender as part of our worship because knowing that Jesus from a place of ultimate power and authority, he took on a posture willing to surrender that power that he had uh, towards the flourishing of others in accordance with God's will. So what does it look like for us to understand what it looks like to mimic that posture when we are the one who has the power to surrender that in response to following the way of Jesus, giving of self towards the flourishing of God's intended design for another? 
And so we talked about that last week. Today we're going to talk about the cycle of discipleship as part of our embodied worship to the Lord. And once again, I just say, I really think that the formation space after service this morning will also be important. If we could have added a seventh week, we would have done it that way instead. So I'm going to kind of move, hopefully quickly, to make sure we have space for that. So if anyone, I just, you should come, that's all. Um, So I want to talk a little bit. The concept of discipleship, really quickly, it didn't start with the followers of Jesus. If we go back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 6, we know the beginning words of a prayer that the Jewish people will repeat, the Shema that we talk about. But we want to read a couple verses further on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That sounds like full embodied worship, doesn't it? all of you, loving the Lord. But then it goes on in verse six. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you go walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up all of our lives, right? Pass these things forward and train up the next generation to know the story of God, the commandments, the character, the promises of God. We need to talk about it all the time. It's part of your life together, not just your own biological children. This is to a community, right? Share this when you rise up, sit down, go to table, go on a walk, like talk about these things and pass this forward. That's a cycle kind of language, right? But now if we move forward, big jump, to the time of Jesus, let's just enter into the culture of the ancient Near East. The discipleship relationship was one that was known in that culture. You would follow a master, you would choose to and commit to follow a master and learn from the action and teaching of that person, ultimately coming to try to imitate them in their ways and uh, even in like their thought process. There were different schools of thought. So in it was common for an apprentice to approach a rabbi, a teacher, and say, can I, can I follow you? Could I be your disciple and be accepted in? Interestingly, what Jesus does is, yes, he acknowledges those people who are already choosing to follow him. And by the way, that goes beyond the 12, although they played a special role. The disciples of Jesus were a handful of men and women who were following after him and choosing to follow him. But Jesus also calls some people, some unexpected folks, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. That was a new move for a rabbi or a teacher to do towards a disciple. So that was kind of new. So for Jesus, discipleship isn't just academic or a religious program, as it may have been for some of the uh, rabbis at the time. You would follow into their school of thought and learn from it. But for Jesus, it was beyond. Discipleship was a life that began in relationship with him as master and moved into all parts of your life. All of your experience was the expectation. You would follow him, and this would impact everything. Interestingly, uh, one source that I was looking at noted this. Jesus' ministry of calling, training, and sending out, also a unique feature. Not everybody was doing that. Okay, calling, training, and sending out disciples stands as a captivating historical phenomenon. Why do we say that? Jesus talks to his disciples, Matthew 28, 19, and says, therefore go and make disciples. I'm sending you out. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go, keep making disciples. Keep the cycle moving. Because interestingly enough, this is why it's like it really is a, a cultural phenomenon. 
2,000 some years later, that cycle has been doing the same work, but not, not to follow after the next generation's master, but the original master. And look at what's grown from that. This is a very unique historical phenomenon because the disciple making all points back to the original master of Jesus. So now let's fast forward those 2000 years because we're doing a really, really fast history lesson and we're coming to today. I think that was maybe what, three minutes? But when we get here to today, the concept of discipleship in our real life together gets a little tricky because the word conjures up or means different things to different people. And I think that's okay, by the way. I'm not here to correct it or to put a one flag in the sand about it. It was interesting, a couple of years ago, as uh, Sam mentioned before, we're one of five Missio Day congregations. Well, every Tuesday, all of us get together as a staff, and we started talking about, like, what would it look like if we sort of shared resources and thoughts to make us a discipleship program? And as we started to talk about what that would look like, we got nowhere so fast, you guys, because we learned that the way that we were even talking about discipleship was nuanced, and we cared passionately. No one was wrong. It was just all like... We, we got to back up to what do we mean when we say it before we can think of a way. And if you look at different churches, I think you'll find that. They have different ways of going about what they would call discipleship. And I think that's great. Again, I'm not trying to land a plane in one spot because it's okay that it's differenced and nuanced. But when somebody will ask me, hey, I was wondering, like, do you do discipleship? Like, could we meet as discipleship? I stop and ask. I'm like, yeah, I love that. That is my jam. What do you mean, though? Because I think it's going to be really important to articulate what we're talking about because I, that staff table day, I realized even the word, people mean different things. But what we're talking about is following in the way of Jesus. So when we talk about how to do discipleship in our life together as Missio Day Wrigleyville, um, now if you're visiting, then like I, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I'm not solving this for the Capital C Church. I'm just saying like, what do we think when we talk as a community here about what we think is on our hearts about um, learning discipleship in our life together and with one another? Because here's the fear, right? You don't wanna accidentally become the disciple of the teacher or the mentor right? We all want to be disciples of Jesus in our life together. And so it's important that we talk about it in that way. And so what does that mean for all of us? It means that we really lean heavily on like peer-to-peer -peer discipleship, meaning community discipleship, moving forward in the way of Jesus in our lives together. There's a lot of that that we look at. This is not a comprehensive list, but when I started to think, like, what are you even talking about, Melissa? You just keep using this word discipleship. I was bugging myself. And so I was trying to say, like, what are some of these things? It's what does it look like to be encouraging one another in prayer, sharing wisdom, sharing life experiences? What has God already brought you through and how might you learn from that? Stories of experiencing God, good and bad, by the way reminding each other the truths of scripture when we're having trouble holding hope, pointing lovingly towards ways that we see another one of us in our community maybe straying from the path of what we believe is the way of Jesus, being willing to confront one another in love if there's been a fracture in a relationship. These are all encouragement towards the way of Jesus in our life together. So if there's no one clear path on how to do this, 
I don't want to just sit up here this morning and share my thoughts on it. I mean, I could, I have thoughts, but that's not what we're here for in this space. That can be over a cup of coffee. What I want to do in this space is open up our Bibles and learn from an example in the early church of what this cycle of discipleship looked like in real time. So in order to do this, we are going to lean in this morning from the letter that was written to this church of the Thessalonians, which is in Thessalonica, spelled differently, but still there today. And we're going to watch this cycle unfold. And we're just going to ask God, like, what, what are you going to teach us through the story of them? So that's our plan for this morning instead of just hearing my thoughts. Um, okay, here we have to start with where this church was birthed. I'm going to read out of Acts 17, 1 through 9. Remember, Acts is the story of the early church after the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers, and then Acts records this movement outward. And we see just a couple verses here and there about a lot of churches that later were the recipients of the letters that are in our New Testament. So it's really good to read the context so we know a little bit of where these things came from. So Thessalonica... Okay, some people dig maps. If you don't dig maps, you don't even have to look right now. Like, check out your neighbor's shoes. I don't care if you know this or not. But for people who like maps, um, it's up there at like 11 o'clock, you see it. And the um, story that we read, Paul and his friends have um, come through those two other A words along the way, that Apollonia and Amphitheus. Okay, I said that one wrong. Anyway, so you get to start to get an idea of like we're traveling. And then when we leave these churches, we don't have text messages. I know I'm stating the obvious, but like we are far away now. And there is distance in between the two. So, okay, for people who like maps and context, here we go. Um, When Paul and his companions had passed through, I'm going to try again, Amphiopolis, that was better, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous How far am I reading? Other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I love that. I don't know why. I need to start calling bad characters. From the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Okay, this is getting serious. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Okay, so a real community of believers started, a riot What's this other king? You get the language. And then it's like, you're busted. You have to leave, Paul. You cannot stay any longer. So this is what we know. If you are someone who likes maps, by the way, and historical context like this, the following information I got out of this great study Bible, culture, what is it, cultural study Bible. Um, I thought I brought it today to show you. I don't have it. If you're somebody who likes this context, if it's helpful, I highly recommend it. Most people think that this letter, the first Thessalonians that we're going to be reading from, 
was written about 20 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended. So about 20 years have passed. And Paul had been there, like we read, teaching, but he was forced to flee. And he couldn't return until the charges against him had expired, which means basically that the next round of magistrates had come in. And so, like, nobody remembered or cared anymore. So the new believers were still there without the church planter, so to speak, right? He's not there anymore. And they had faced some suffering. And Paul and the... uh, Paul and the other church planners weren't there to look to. And now this is interesting because some believers through the course of those years, like they had passed away and we don't know how, but they were kind of thinking that Jesus was gonna come back really, really soon. So like now what? So there's questions and our original teacher isn't here anymore. And so Paul writes a letter to encourage them and strengthen them in their hope while they continue and we continue to wait for Christ's return. So that's a little bit of the context of like, we came to faith with these church planters. Now they're gone. We've got serious questions. Help. Okay, so now we're going to get into the letter. As uh, Kristen read this first part, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, right off the bat, we're going to note that there are three people writing. So we've got... um, the uh, authority of three leaders together, which Paul would have been the original one who was there. Remember in our text, it didn't indicate that Timothy was, but now we know this new guy, Timothy, who's joined with the two people we knew as our original church planters. So let's note that. Writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. I just point that out because we didn't make that up. Right, Sam? It's right there, like you said, all along. Grace and peace to you. We pass this message of Christ's grace and peace to one another. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in another place, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul would write to another church, the church in Corinth. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Sound familiar? But the greatest of these in love. And so we know from this other passage that in Paul's book, they're doing a really core three things. This is like a good job, you guys. You're doing this well. Picking up in verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. This is reminding them of the story we just read. You not only heard this message, but like the Holy Spirit came upon you, and you became the church in that moment, right? He's reminding them of that powerful moment. You know how we lived among you for your sake. This is the part I want us to notice. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So they accepted the message in the spirit-empowered way. Remember that. Then the believers, the new believers, became imitators of Paul and Silas, who had introduced them to the Lord, and of the Lord himself. And then they became models for others. That's the cycle right? You were imitating, and now you're a model for others. Cycle of discipleship is happening. A Roman philosopher, I don't remember if it's exactly the same time, but general context, uh, Seneca wrote this, people put more trust in their eyes than in their ears. I think that's really important to remember when we talk about the cycle of discipleship in the way of Jesus. 
Because I can talk all day, but what if my body doesn't match my words? What, do, what, what confusing message would you see? So anyway, um, we say this, what, what, what people younger, I don't mean age, um, in, in their experience as Christians, what they need is models that embody the way of Christ and who are worthy of being copied, and then they start to imitate that, and it keeps moving forward as a cycle. And so that's a really beautiful thing. I'm gonna go forward a little bit. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, start, uh, picking up in the second half of verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share you with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. That's the embodied part, right? Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Quick note, that can sound a little haughty to our ears, like, well, didn't you do a good job? But the truth is, is that he's just reminding them, like, our modeling mattered, and you saw it. Remember, I'm not just giving words. You saw that we embodied this way. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So we shared our lives with you, growing as disciples in Jesus with shared lives in relationship with each other and living this modeled way of life. And now we want to encourage you to do the same. We want to teach as the teachers. We want to be now the encouragers to raise you up to do the same. So in that way, I would say like discipleship here looks like it could be defined simply as encouragement to live this way of Jesus in the here and not yet not just, again, for future salvation, but we were models, and now you're becoming models. So at this point in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul cannot return still. So he says, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. So he's still hanging out in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and coworker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one could be unsettled by these trials because you know quite well that we are destined for them. So now the time has come for more encouragement. We encouraged you while we were there. You're having trials. We sent Timothy because you need more encouragement because by the way, here's the acknowledgement, trials come in this path of walking the way of Jesus. So we know it's gonna happen and we wanna keep on strengthening and encourage you to keep on learning in the midst of that reality. Again, that's discipleship. We all have trials, right? What does it look like to continue to encourage and uh, strengthen each other as we continue on in trials? But in 3.13, I think this is subtle but important. Paul prays that God would strengthen their hearts so they could live holy and blameless. And I point this out because Paul sent Timothy to encourage and strengthen, but note he is praying for the true source of that strength to be God, not Timothy. Timothy is a messenger, but like all discipleship points towards the Lord, not towards the mentor or the strengthener or the encourager, points towards the Lord as the true source. So our first three chapters are just chock full of encouragement in this letter. And then he goes on to some specific instructions and remembering that he was the one who planted the church to talk, remind them, how to live well as the church in the midst of a culture that is not all believers. 
So he just gives some instruction and encouragement, specifically around uh, sexual uh, morality, sexual purity, uh, about loving each other, working honest work, living respectfully among each other. He kind of reminds them and, and encourages them in those things. And then he goes into a specific teaching about what happens after believers have died and what it looks like to wait for Jesus. And that's why I point back to that cultural study Bible because it's really helpful to know otherwise. You're like, why is this the one lesson? I don't know. But once you know, like, oh my gosh, we thought Jesus would come back by now and some of the people are dying. And like, I don't think you ever taught us about that when you were here first. So this is an additional teaching now. Paul is supplementing teaching from Pastor Paul to equip them to live this out in their life together even when Paul is still absent. So, okay, it's time for some additional teaching, and here's what I love. The additional new teaching for them, specific to their question, is bookended again with encouragement. So in 4.18, encourage another with these words, teaching, 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 and he ends it with, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. It's as if in this teaching, Paul is saying, use the words in teaching as encouragement to each other. I'm not there but you have what you need. Encourage one another with the things that I have left you. You have what you need. The Holy Spirit is with you. So here's a little like onslaught from Paul. I'm not gonna read it all because, and it's gonna be in a font that Sam would say, never never use this because you can't read it. But okay, but just, I want you to just look at this. This is like, he's sort of already made this closing sense and then all of a sudden he picks it back up with like a few final thoughts and he gives, I counted them 17 action verbs that fast, all the underlined words. Acknowledge, hold, warn, live, help, encourage, make sure, strive, give thanks. I won't keep going, 17. It's this onslaught of encouragement that's like, here's how to do all of this. It's like a fire hose of discipleship instruction that he gives. But the sense that you get with all the encouragement that he's built, if we encouraged you, then we sent back some encouragement. You have everything you need to encourage one another. And now it's like he's saying, you're doing great. Keep going. I can't be there. But like, remember, here's what it looks like in your life together. And I love that it is, the the last part is about your prayer, your response to the Holy Spirit, but you guys, that whole first part is about what it looks like peer-to-peer in your life together. It's all about how we are responding to one another. It all is peer-to-peer discipleship and encouraging each other up in the Lord. Scott McKnight in this commentary that he had just given me, he says this, the Christian life is a relational life. It's a mistake to reduce it, however important, to one's personal private relationship with the Lord. Most of the Christian life instructions in the New Testament are about interpersonal relationships with other human beings. There's a whole lot of grittiness in our life together now. That's why we're talking about this as embodied worship. So why do I point this out? I find this letter to be such a beautiful example of a cycle of discipleship in our lives together. First, uh, given as an example by Christ, who built up and sent out, bless you, wherever that came from, (laughs) built up and sent out and said, keep going, 
Keep going in this. But then Paul is doing the same thing. He's not swooping in and being like, oh, guys, you've got questions. I'll come back for a while. He's not even saying, I'll send Timothy and he'll be your leader now. He's saying, no, this cycle continues. The Holy Spirit is among you. Let me give you some extra that you need. Encourage one another. Remember these things in your life with one another. The nature of any individual, any one of you, any one of me, any one of our roles in a cycle of discipleship, it might change seasonally. You may be in a season where you need to receive a bunch and you may be in a season where you can just offer a bunch to somebody who needs wisdom or prayer or someone to hold hope. You want, but whatever, whatever place you are in a different season, it's, the cycle is perpetuated by all believers through time. And it's a cycle that must continue forward and everybody plays a part. That's why I was saying this letter is a beautiful reminder because this is not me spelling out some new system to do discipleship that you can enter in. Like it's, No, this is in all of our lives together. We may do things like formations classes. Those are awesome and it is for that purpose. But we all play a role in the cycle of discipleship in our uh, encouraging of one another forward in the way of Jesus. I'm coming crashing a little bit into our ending today, and I acknowledge that because I was hoping if I crashed a little bit, you guys would be like, wow, that was faster than usual. I can stay. No joke. I can stay because we need to talk about discipling our emotions. So I'm crashing a little bit here at the end, but I really want to tell you two things that I think are challenges and two things that I want to respond to those challenges with, with very specific encouragement to us today in our context. Number one, the challenge is the concept of credentials. This is the concept in our lives together, peer-to-peer discipleship, where we think, I don't have enough advanced biblical knowledge. I haven't been going to church long enough. I don't hold a degree or whatever. No, You don't need any of that to be involved in the cycle of discipleship in the way of Jesus Christ. We have to invest ourselves in the growth and development of one another without getting stopped up by credentials. I'm gonna geek out for just a minute. So this is a really great book. I love this book. Gordon Fee is a New Testament scholar. He focuses a lot on the role of Paul and the Holy Spirit. Um, But he writes this amazing book and I love the way he talks about this. He's talking about, Salvation um, by God has been brought about in Christ. The Spirit both forms the church into God's new people and conforms them into Christ's image through his fruit, the Spirit's fruit in their lives. And the Spirit gifts them in worship to edify and encourage one another in their ongoing life in the world, okay? That sounds a lot like embodied worship to me. The Spirit gives what's needed for our worship to be done through not only song, but in edifying and encouraging one another in our ongoing life together. That's beautiful. Paul was writing with that assumption that this is how this church life works. It's just, this is how Christ leads the church is through the spirit in and through the people who are here right now. So this is the geek out part. That just is a part I care a lot about, but here's the the Greek geek, right? There's two words that I think lose luster a little bit in our translation that are very important in the words of Paul's writing. The first one is koinonia, which is the word that gets translated fellowship. The really important 
part I want to say is that there is a part of that word that is so lost on us because it's not just fellowship gathering. It's a participatory word. It's talking about active participation, both of the Holy Spirit with the people and the people with one another. Fellowship doesn't quite hit it. I wish we could tweak it a little. I don't know what it would be. But this is a participatory word. And Paul uses it all the time in his letters when he's talking about in your gathering together, right? But the second one I want to point out is this uh, Greek word alanon, and this would be translated as one another. And I just want to point out, like, to, this is what Gordon Fee says. He says this, in Paul's exhortations, everything is done alanon. And he says, you're members of one another. You're built up in one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Pursue one another's goods. Bear one another in love. Bear one another's burdens. Be compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. The list goes on. I won't bore you. Everything is done Al-Anon in the Koinonia Fellowship. These words mean such participatory language that we cannot reduce it to learning from the person who maybe has been reading their Bible longer than us. No, because the Holy Spirit is the one who does this. The Holy Spirit equips us for the Al-Anon one-anothering that God has called us and invited us and made a way for us to participate in. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit equips us for one-anothering. I maybe made up that word, or maybe Gordon Fee did. I couldn't find it in his book, but I was pretty sure it was him first. But maybe me, I don't know. One-anothering is an invitation and the Holy Spirit is the equipper in this participatory life together. And so Christ as the head of the church leads us and sharpens us through the Holy Spirit discipling us in and through one another. That's how this whole system works. And so this is not some system that you sign up and you just go as a participant. This is an in-life together cycle of discipleship. The other point is faster and I don't geek out on any more words This is the thing that I see as a real challenge. If you've been around a while, you've heard me say this before. Points of intersection in the city are hard. We all don't live in a close neighborhood with one another. If we want to see each other outside of a Sunday morning, not to mention many of us travel on Sundays, we have to work at it. I'm not going to run into you at the soccer field, most likely, or the grocery store. Very rarely do I run into any of you at the grocery store. Do you guys run into each other very often? Not by chance. If you want to go on a walk with somebody else in this koinonia fellowship, you got to work at it. And that's just a truth. Points of intersection in urban living take extra work. But I just want to tell you guys that it's worth it. And I don't have any great solution. We try to create points of intersection here where we can come back or go to GC or come to community night, make chili, vote on chili. Maybe Aaron and Sunghae will win again. Like these points are good, but like we can't offer the solution for points of intersection. It takes a bold decision on every participant's part to work for points of participation intersection in the lives of one another so that we even can be in a posture to disciple, sharpen, encourage one another. Or else, it's just really hard to know. Our hearts can be so good. But for some of you today, I would say it probably takes a bold step to decide, I might need to be a little inconvenienced in my calendar to make sure that I am doing the part to get even exposed to the encouragement that I need in my walk with Jesus. And so that's not a guilt trip, you guys. 
that's an honest fact check. And sometimes when I look at my calendar, it feels super hard to get those point of intersections in there. But please don't give up. Please don't give up on creating those, on working for them, and being bold and reaching out. Because in order to be encouraged by one another in the way of Jesus, we have to be around one another. And so that's just a word that's on my heart for us and me as we look at the reality of calendars. And if there's any way that we can help one another outside of running into each other physically, like let's be creative. I'm not against that too. But there has to be a willingness to reach out and say, if I'm going to be participating and expectant of encouragement from this body of Christ, I I need to make sure that points of intersection are even possible. So I want to encourage you guys with that. Um, I would just say, like, the, the cycle is worth it. The cycle has worked. It will continue to work to raise one another up and to remember that the Holy Spirit is doing this work in and through one another in this body of Christ. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are true to your promises. As we gathered in the 9 a.m. prayer room and remember that as we are gathered in your name, you are already there with us, for us, encouraging my heart Um, And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to be the one to do this cycle of discipleship in and through one another for your purposes and for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.